Praise God. Can you look at someone and say, let's trust God? <laughs> All right. And then look at someone else and say, I am going to trust God. <laughs> yes. That's about as long as a sentence as we can do, and it'd be okay here. Um, I want you to think about something. I, if you didn't grow up in America, then this might kind of phase you out for a couple seconds, but um, can you think about this question for five seconds, and I want you to, to talk, talk to the person next to you. What's your favorite, or not, maybe not your favorite, but the first Dr. Seuss book that comes to your mind? Can you say that? Just share that with one another. All right. And hey, let's do this. At the count of three, okay, don't yell, but just can you just speak out what book you said? At the count of three, okay? Ready? One, two, three. Okay. Thank you for shouting at me. Uh, anyone? Yurtle the turtle? Oh, Charlie. What? Crazy. Okay, and another? Uh, okay, good, good, good. Uh, I want to mention a little bit about a book called Yertle the Turtle. It was very, uh, it, it's not like, I don't think it's like most Dr. Seuss books. I, one of the green eggs and ham was, uh, he wrote that on a dare or on a kind of a bet that I don't think you can write a book using only 50 words. And so um, green eggs and ham, Sam I am, uses only 50 words and he repeats the same words over and over and over. Uh, pretty fascinating. But Yertle the Turtle was one of um, the ones that I, I really appreciated because it told a, a pretty sweet story. It's about a turtle, Yertle the Turtle, and he was in search of power. He wanted to be a powerful king over the turtle universe, not only over all the turtles, but over the world in general. And so what he did was he created a throne for himself by stacking or demanding that other turtles stack themselves up so that he could be on top of that. And so this was Yertle the turtle, oh marvelous me, I am the ruler of all that I see. And everyone said, well, Yertle, since he's on the top of the heap, is the best turtle that there is. But his problem was, as people in power are often wanting to do, he wanted more power, okay? I am the ruler of all that I see, but I don't see enough. That's the problem with me. And so he said, I need more turtles to stack themselves up so I can get higher and higher and higher. And some of the turtles on the bottom started saying, hey, uh, Yertle, this is too much. We need a break. Like, we're tired. This hurts us. It's easy for you, but it bothers us. And he would not give them a break. And then he looked up one night, and he saw the moon in the sky, and he said, oh, my gosh. And he could not bear the thought that something was higher than him. And so he demanded that more turtles be brought and more turtles come and stack up, stack up, stack up their throne in order that he would see more and more and more so that his domain, at least according to his mind, uh, would continue to expand. But something happened along the way. There was a turtle at the bottom. His name was Mac. It might have been because of what he had eaten. It might have been because of all the pressure on him. But Mac decided that he needed to burp. And so Mac burps, and it shook the foundation of that throne, and everything came crumbling down, and Yertle the turtle went from the majesty <laughs> to the mud in a matter of seconds. And so here now is Yertle the turtle, oh marvelous he, he's the ruler of the mud because that's all he can see. When Dr. Seuss wrote that, he said, Yertle the turtle is Adolf Hitler. That's who I'm writing about. And so in some countries, some places, it was banned. Some places banned it because they said burping is inappropriate. Um, true story. But he was saying this was Adolf Hitler. He wanted more and more power, more and more territory, more and more domain. And then just like that, he went from being on top of the throne into the midst of the mud. As we've been reading the book of Esther, you could also make a case that Yertle the turtle is a picture of another ancient person who wanted to annihilate the Jewish people. It could also be seen as a picture of Haman. We've been looking at five characters in the true story of the Jews living in Persia in the 5th century B.C., fifth and, in the 5th century B.C., and out of these five, two of them have already disappeared from the storyline now. It's just Xerxes, Esther, and Mordecai are left. 
And where we left off, we left the Jews in this place of looks like uh, they were going to be annihilated, but all of a sudden there's a little bit of hope rising up because of a series of seeming coincidences, much like in Jeannie's story, things that were not that great, things that seemed like they were bad, things that, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening to me. It was the banishing of a queen. It was an unlikely, unlikely uh, suspect to become the new queen. It was a Jew who was hiding his identity as a follower of God. And then it took a, a, a sleepless night from a king and then a random trip on top of a sofa that led to the downfall of Haman. And all of these series of events have brought us to where we are today. In Esther chapter 8, what we're seeing is the people of God are still in grave danger. There have been a series of plot twists that have happened along the way to get them from where they were to where they are now, but we see that they're still in the thick of a decree that's going to that, that's come on them, this one night of purging where the 15 million Jews of the Persian Empire are annihilated in a night. And then we come to Esther chapter 8, and we're going to see what happens next in the true story of the history of God's people living in Persia. Esther chapter 8, we're going to read the whole chapter starting in verse 1. Haman has just been hung. Haman was the bad. He was the second in command, the vice president, the prime minister. He's just been hung 75 feet in the air on the gallows that he had made in order to kill Mordecai. But Haman is the one who is ultimately crucified. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, that same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther... Haman's estate, okay, the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, okay, which he had reclaimed from Haman and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate, okay? Just takes a burp to change everything, and it does. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I've given his estate, to, his estate to Esther, and they've hanged him on the gallows. Now, write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once, the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, uh, the month of Sivan. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict, here it was, granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this was, uh, in all the provinces of King Xerxes, was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves and their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses raced out, spurred on the, by the king's command, and the edict was also issued in the citadel of Susa. Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen, and the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And, and 
many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. This is God's word. Wow, this is uh, amazing. So we have been asking this question, how do the righteous live in the midst of an unrighteous world? How do we as the people of God live in the midst of this kind of a world? Two thoughts here, two thoughts that we see um, that I think will ground us as we live life for God in this world. The first thing is this, the righteous, okay, the righteous will be blessed on earth as well as in heaven, okay? The righteous will be blessed, okay, on earth as well as in heaven. This is what we've been looking at, and this is what, uh, throughout the Old Testament, you see this, throughout the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, especially the Psalms, the first book of the Psalms, the ancient hymn book, when the Jewish people would gather together, they would open up the Psalms, and that would be what united them as a people of God in worship. The very first Psalm, the doorway into the song book, said, blessed is a man who does not walk in the way of sinners or stand in the way of, you know, all that stuff, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Basically, Psalm 1 is saying, here's the blessed person. The blessed person is the the righteous one. Here's the perishing person. It's the wicked one. In other words, it's saying at the outset, okay, this is what God's word is saying, and this is what we remind ourselves constantly, is that the righteous ones will be blessed and the wicked ones will perish. Whatever it might look like on this earth, that's the way it will be in the life to come. And he says, do you believe that? And can you trust that? Because what Esther, the book of Esther is saying is the same thing that the psalmist said through poetry. Esther is saying through historical narrative that the righteous will be blessed. It may take some time. It may take a while. It might look different from the way genies look, but it will come to you. The righteous are not forgotten by God, and the blessing of God will come a lot of times and usually on this life, but definitely in the life to come. C.S. Lewis, I think it was Lewis, who said something like, if you live for earth, then you'll miss out on earth and the life to come. But if you live for heaven, then you'll get heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in as well. This is what he's saying. This is what she's saying. This is what the book of Esther is saying. The righteous will be blessed. Well, the question is, who are the righteous? Because I have... I have taken pains to show you through the way that the, 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 the book of Esther is written that Esther and Mordecai are not being painted as moral exemplars in the book of Esther, at least not in the beginning. They're not Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're not standing for their convictions. They're not saying, I won't defile myself with the royal food. I'm only going to eat kosher foods. They're not doing that stuff. They are going with the flow of Persia. They're living exactly like everyone else in the Persian Empire is living. Esther and Mordecai, we know them to be the heroes of this book because we know the whole story, the true story. But in the beginning, they are not seen as examples to follow nor as examples of morality or spirituality. They're hiding their faith. They're compromising. So what is it that begins to happen? Here's what makes them honorable, and here's what makes them people worthy of respect, is that the Esther in chapter 1, the Mordecai in chapter 1, is not the same person as the Esther and Mordecai in chapter 8. They're the same person, but they're growing. They are changing. The more they see the work of God, the more the conviction of God falls on them, their lives are beginning to change. Esther 8, this woman is completely different from the woman in Esther 1. This man in chapter 8 is different from the man in chapter 1. They're growing and they're changing because you have to realize that faith is a journey. And it's not about perfection in this moment. It's about progression throughout the journey. Who you are right now ought to be as a child of God, a a different person than who you were last year. And who you are today should be a lot different than who you are a year out from now. We ought to love Jesus more. We ought to be more holy, more sanctified, more righteous, more devoted, more committed then than we are right now. And we ought to be more so now than we were two years ago. That's the process of growth. It's not about being perfect, but it's about making progress and growth in the life of faith. And so you have Esther and you have Mordecai, and you see that they're beginning to change into a person of righteousness. How do you know? Here's how you know. Because in the Old Testament, the clearest way, the clearest description of how you see whether you're righteous or unrighteous is not in what you say, and it's not in what you give. It's not in uh, the songs that we sing. It's not in the... The one way that you see it is how you relate to your community. 
You see this in, in, in the New Testament also, the great commandment. You love God, show your love for God. How? By loving each other. How will the world know that you're his disciples? By the way that you love one another. So by your relationships with other people, you show whether your heart is a righteous heart or an unrighteous heart. Here's how Bruce Waltke said it. He's an Old Testament scholar, one of my former professors. He said, a righteous person is seen in how they inconvenience themselves in order to benefit the community. Okay, that's huge. Okay, don't miss this. A righteous person is seen in how they inconvenience themselves to benefit the community. A wicked person is a person who inconveniences other people to benefit themselves. Yertle the turtle, Adolf Hitler, Haman, these are all Xerxes. These are all unrighteous people because they benefited themselves at the inconveniencing of other, at the expense of other people. A righteous person does the opposite. At my expense, I want my people to be blessed. Based on that, okay, based on that Old Testament understanding of what a righteous person is, are you righteous? Does your heart betray righteousness or does it show an unrighteousness? And is there a growing pattern of that in your life? Haman and Xerxes, for all of their power, they continued to use their power in order to build their own throne. I'm going to make them a eunuch. I'm going to make them part of my harem. For my pleasure, I'm going to utilize the people and inconvenience them, ruin their lives for my own gain. But here, Esther and Mordecai, they have a choice. What are they going to do? Because you see what's happening. We saw last week that God doesn't forget the righteous. He will reward it. He will see you as you labor, as you fight, as you strive. It seems like the wicked are getting ahead, and it seems like you're falling behind. Does, it seem, does anyone feel that? Like, I'm trying to live a life of godliness at work. I'm not cutting corners. I'm coming on time. I'm leaving on time. I'm doing all that's right. I'm putting in my solid hours, but other people are getting promoted ahead of me. I'm doing everything that I ought to be doing, but my friends who cheat their way through high school end up getting into the college that they wanted to get into, and I didn't. It seems a lot of time that the righteous are falling behind, but the promise of God, the teaching of Scripture throughout is that the righteous will be blessed in this life, and if not certainly, in the life to come. And the question is, do you believe that? Can you trust that? Can you trust that God sees and that he knows and that you never lose when you follow Jesus? For all these years, it seemed like Haman is everything that Mordecai wanted to be. And then in a moment, all it took, one burp, one sleepless night, one tripping over a couch, and everything changes overnight. And overnight, you see, I mean, these two things, you cannot be more clear. It was the position that Mordecai wanted, and Haman's position was given to him. It was these possessions that he longed for that was given from Haman to Mordecai. It was an estate. It was everything, the power, the prestige, the platform in order to do something, the signet ring given from Haman to Mordecai. And all of a sudden, Mordecai's vindication is coming because he knows now that if I follow Christ, the one who was to come, follow God, live a life of righteousness, there will be a blessing to come. And so here's Esther and here's Mordecai. We see, because the author is not writing this in real time as it happens, after the fact, he's writing all of these things and it begins to get written. But as you see this, understand this. This is, again, you only see this by looking at a view from 10,000 feet, but in, in, you don't have to turn, but just trust this. In Esther chapter 2, okay, Esther chapter 2 verse 9, says the girl pleased him and won his favor, okay? Remember this, favor. In Esther chapter 2, uh, verse 15, it says, and Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. Esther 2.17, uh, and she won the favor and approval more than any of the others. Then jump ahead to chapter 5, verse 7. If the king regards me with favor, chapter 7, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 7 verse, five, uh, verse 3, Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, O king, chapter 8, verse 5, and if he regards me with favor, this word is the word grace. In other words, God's grace was with the righteous even when they didn't think it was with them. 
Even in those seeming tragedies, when she was chosen out of all of the other women to become the queen, when it didn't seem like his favor was there, God's grace was over the hearts of those who are committed to walking with him. Again, we don't see that in the moment, but looking back as the author writes in the story, the true story, saying all this time God's grace was over them. I remember a time I was walking through Walmart. This was years ago. I was walking through Walmart um, on Colonial Drive, and there, uh, there was a haircut place there. And I kind of needed a haircut, kind of didn't, but I just, I, I just popped in there, was looking at the, at the prices, and this lady said, young man, come have a seat, have a seat. I said, I'm just looking. She's like, no, sit. Don't need to look at the price. Today, your haircut is on me. And I said, why? She said, I know you're a man of God. She didn't know who I was. She said, I know you're a man of God, and today you're walking in the favor of God, is what she said. I said, are you sure you want, you don't have to do this? She said, no, this is God's favor. Just receive it. So I sat down, I let her cut my hair. I was like, that's cool. Eventually, as you seek to live a life of righteousness, God has ways of honoring it. Now, let me, let me rewind for a second and say, just because you choose to inconvenience yourself for the sake of others doesn't mean you're righteous. Okay, doesn't mean you're righteous, nor is that how you become righteous. The righteous live by faith. The only way we become righteous is through trusting in the finished work of Christ, the righteous one replacing our unrighteous deeds. That's how we become righteous. And the sign of that, the proof of that, the evidence of that righteousness is that we inconvenience ourselves for the sake of other people. But don't think you can do it the other way. If I inconvenience myself for others, I can be righteous in the sight of God. That's not what he's saying. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Scripture says. But you know in your heart that your heart has been transformed into one that is increasing in righteousness because it shows out in this fruit. I put myself under others in order that they might have life. And so here... Haman dies, leaves everything behind. That's all of us. All of us are going to leave everything behind. Basically, all we are is pre-dead people. One day we're going to die. We're just waiting to die. We're pre-dead people, and we've got all this stuff, and all this stuff is going to go to another pre-dead person at some point in their lives also. All right, what do we live for? What do we live for? Because the wicked, that's all they live for. They live for what they see. And a lot of times what they don't understand is that all it takes is a burp for them to be in the mud, and that's all they see. But here what Esther and Mordecai are seeing is that God remembers the righteous. I I, I was meeting with someone this week, and as they're talking about how they're applying to jobs and they're, they're, they're seeking to be faithful. They're seeking to be faithful in their house church and in their different ministries that they've been, uh, they've been committed to. And as they do, as they're looking for work, nothing seems to be happening. And then all of a sudden, weeks later, they get a call and they get an interview and they say, I felt like I was Mordecai. Because at some point in time, the blessing will come to the righteous. It seems like the unrighteous are getting ahead, but will you trust? Even when you don't see God on the road marked with suffering, though there's pain in this offering, do you still trust that he's good and that he's worthy of following even when it seems like it's not? Because God always has a way of blessing the righteous. How does he do it here? With, hate, with Mordecai? He does, and it can be in a million different ways. It can be financially. It can be in spiritually. It can be relationally. It can be in your ministry. But here, it's very clear. He gives them possessions. He gives them positions. He gives them power. And he gives them platform. And the second thing that we see, the second question that we ask as we receive the blessing from God, and you could receive that blessing in a million different ways, but as you get that blessing, what do you do with it? The second thing that we see is that the righteous use their blessing so that others might live. The righteous use their blessing so that others might live. So think about this. Think about the people who are growing in righteousness. You've got Esther and you've got Mordecai and they've got everything that they've ever wanted. The problem is the death decree over 15 million Jews still hangs over them nine months from now. So what do you do? You've got You've got everything that you need in life, everything that you want in life. You've got a home. You've got a job. You've got money. You've got a family. You've got people like you. You've got everything. But as you look out at this world, you know that there are 15 million. You've got, there's billions of people in the world who are dying without Jesus. And the question is, what do you do about it? What do you do about it? Because for Esther and Mordecai, they had a very important decision to make. 
We've got everything, but looming over the heads of our people is the scepter of death. We're not much different from Esther and Mordecai as we live in this world. Okay, you and I have been saved. We have royal position. We are children of God. We have the richest father in the world. Not only is he rich, but he loves us. We have everything. We have the ear of the king. Whenever we want to pray for anything, we can pray to him. We have all that we need. And the question is, the same question that confronted Esther and Mordecai, are we going to just sit down and say, I've got, I've got everything. I've got everything. God's blessed me. God, you're so good. Like everything is awesome. Or will we see that God has given us these things for a purpose greater than our lives? Because I, I don't know. I, when, I read, when I read the news uh, or I watch the news or I watch like, you know, you're standing at the checkout line at Publix and you see Us magazine and you read about celebrities. I think there's a couple kind of stories that you can hear. One, there's a celebrity, the athlete, the movie star, the millionaire, whomever it is, who's got all this money, like tons of money, and for whatever way they've gotten it, but they've gotten it. They've got all this stuff. And then you read about what they've got. They've got 10 homes on different private islands that they've bought. They've got yachts. They've got a 70-car garage. They never ride a different car uh, every week it's a different car. They're living that way. And you're like, man, that's awesome. And some people look at that and say, wow, oh, to be like them. They've earned it. They've got everything. They worked hard, and that's where they are, and they've got it. That's one group of people. There's another group of people, when you read about these celebrities, when you read about the things that they do with their stuff, with their possessions, with their power, with their popularity, with their platform, they do something with it for the sake of other people. You hear about, well, there's a foundation called the Make-A-Wish Foundation, you know, the Make-A-Wish Foundation for kids who are ill, like really, really ill. And so they have these wishes. I want to go to this football game or I want to uh, go to this concert or I want to just spend um, a day with um, this world leader, what, whatever it is. And, and this organization does whatever they can to make that wish come true. You know who has had the most requests for wishes? Right? Hey, we want you to come and make a wish for a kid. I don't know who's had the most requests, but um, the person who has fulfilled the most requests is Justin Bieber. Over 200 people's requests, he's come, flown his way over, and sang to them, or had a meal with them, or talked to them, or wrote them a song. 200 people, and I thought, wow, all of a sudden, I'm a believer now. I've got newfound respect for this guy. Like, what? I, I'm like, this guy's like such a little punk. But now I, I read that, I'm like, hey, you know what? Maybe he's a good guy. Beyonce, Queen B, one day she was, 2013, she went shopping, Christmas shopping at Walmart. Do you know she shops at Walmart? So maybe you might see her one day. Walmart, but this was in Massachusetts. So she was Christmas shopping. And then when she was checking out, she bought $40,000 worth of gift cards and she gave one to every person in the store in order that they would be able to buy their loved ones a Christmas gift. And she hand wrote a Christmas card to them also. I'm like, yo, that's pretty sweet, right? All of a sudden, my level of respect for Bieber and, and, and Beyonce has, has gone up because I realized, wow, they're using what has been entrusted to them. And they're using it to make the lives of other people happy. I don't know how you, I mean, you think about that and, and you're like, well, they didn't have to do that. It's theirs anyway. Or you could say, no, they've been entrusted with it and it's up to them. Will they do good with it or will they just keep it for themselves? Esther and Mordecai have everything. They've got everything that they want. What are they going to do with the power with the position that they have. Esther, again, pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. It says, if I found favor, could I see the destruction of my people? Could I watch that and do nothing about it? What does she do? She cashes in all of that stuff, and she says, for the sake of my people, because they matter more than this stuff that I'm going to leave to my pre-dead children after I die. 
If this is Oscar Schindler's, and this is one, one of my favorite places when, when Olivia and I visited Israel this summer was, I mean, Garden of Gethsemane, uh, the tomb, the, the, the place of, of crucifixion, Sea of Galilee, those were easily the best. But the non-biblical place that I loved the most was his graveyard. Right outside, right, right outside where Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. And a German man named Oscar Schindler was buried there. He was a Nazi. He was, he was a... Uh, hater of the, he was one of he was one of them, but he employed over a thousand Jewish people in his factories in Poland. And as he began to work, as they began to work for them, he began to see them as people. And he realized, wow, I need to, I can save these people. And so he did. It took a lot of bribing, in order to have the Nazis turn the other way, but he did. It was a, pen, a car, and all these things could only be bought on the black market. You couldn't buy them in, 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 in you know, hey, let's go to the car store and buy a car. Can't do that. Underground, black market, buying all these things, a car for 10 people, a pen for one person. And at the end of it all, he said, he said 1,100 were saved. 1,100 were saved. And they honored him, and they blessed him, and he said, I wish I could have, I wish I could have done more. They said, you did everything you could. He said, I wish I could have done more. They gave him a ring. I think it says something like, he who saves one saves all or something to that effect. But he saw what God had entrusted to him. I don't know if he was a Christian, but what he had, like I could either use this for myself and build my empire, which will surely and soon collapse. Or I could cash this in and invest it into the lives of people who need it. And this is what Esther was confronted with. And she said, for the sake of my people, could I watch them as they die? I need to do something about it. And so she does. I don't know what ha- we don't know what happens after the book of Esther ends, but I can imagine Esther chapter 1, Esther would not risk her life for these people. She wouldn't. And she didn't. But something happened along the way when she stood in the citadel of Susa and looked down at all of these people. She saw 15 million dead people. And she said, I've got to do something about it. I cannot just sit here on my royal shiny throne and do nothing about it. I've got to do something if all of these people are dying. And I see that. She said, could I bear to watch that? Could I bear to see that is what she says. And the question that the text confronts us with is, can we bear to see that? Can we look at that living in the midst of all that we have and just say, this is for myself? Or do we say, God, I want to, because you think about how you came to know Jesus. It was someone who took something that God had blessed them with. It was, they had a car and they said, I'm going to drive you to a year youth meeting so that you can encounter Jesus. It was someone who, who stayed up late with you at one retreat and prayed with you so that you could give your life to Christ. It's someone who stayed with you and they talked with you over many lunches and helped you to find hope in Christ. Someone along the way invested something of what God had given to them in order that you might find life in Christ. And it comes to us and the question is, what do I do with what? I have been entrusted with now like what am I going to do with that when I see dead people all around will I use the resources that God has entrusted and placed in my hands so that and give them so that others might live again I don't know what Esther's life was like but maybe she uh, somehow had a kid and she had grandchildren and they're saying hey mom hey grandma um, we read about you in this book like it's awesome like you risked your life was it easy was it hard and I don't know whether it was easy or hard for her to do. I would imagine it was pretty hard, but she would probably say, what choice did I have any other choice to do anything about it? What choice do I have when these people's lives are on the line and I can do something about it? Is there a choice for me? And that question rolls down through the ages and it lands squarely in our shoulders here. When you get older, when you're 50, 60, 70, 80, and your grandkids say, hey, in the midst of this world in which you live, all these people are dying. What was your story? What did you do? What did you do about it? Was there something that you did? I hope that there's a story that I could tell to, to my kids that, yeah, it was hard. Yeah, God blessed us with these things, but we gave it in order that people could come to know Jesus. We gave it so that other people could live. I didn't just sit on it. We didn't have everything that this world says you gotta have, but we had everything we needed, and we gave all that we could in order that others might find life in Jesus. That's her story. A broken person, jacked up, messed up, compromised, faltered, flawed, but she fought 
to grow so that others might be with her, not in the kingdom of Persia, but in the kingdom of heaven. And you see this reversal. There was kill, destroy, annihilate. That decree could not be overturned because the king's signet ring had signed it. But what it can do is it can be counter-decreed. And so the counter-decree said those same three words, you Jews, assemble yourselves, and if anyone attacks you, you can kill, destroy, and annihilate them. In other words, where there was once death, there's now the hope of life. And that's been given to the people because she said, I will stand and give what I have for the sake of my people, for the sake of dead people, for the sake of dying people, for the sake of other pre-dead people who in nine months now, the clock is ticking, are going to face the end of a sword and will meet their maker. What will we do with what God has given to us? Now think about, I was driving to church this morning and I was like, God, if I, this world is so broken. It's so messed up. I, man, if I could have my way, I'd just go to heaven, but it's for the sake of people who don't, there are people that I love who don't know Jesus. Say, God, if they all knew Jesus and take me away now, but until my expiration date comes, man, I want to live so that others can find the hope in Christ. When I look out over the contours of my life, dead people all around. When you look at your life, dead people all around, what will your story be at the end of the days? People think about you when they ask you, what did you do about the death and the brokenness and the destruction and the annihilation and the killing of all of these people, not on earth, but for eternity? What do you do? What do you do? We don't look simply to Esther, she will inspire us. But we look to the one to whom Esther looked because there was a far greater, a far greater Esther. And Jesus saw all that he had and he said, the Son of Man came not to be served on top of a heap of turtles, but to come down and to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There was a decree, an edict that was issued for all time, not from the citadel of Susa, but as the consequences of sin, that death falls over every human being. That cannot be repealed. But there was a counter decree that was given when the Son of God rose from the grave victorious after dying on the cross for your sins and mine. He said, anyone who puts their faith in me can live where death was the end of the story. Now there's hope and now there's life. You and I are the messengers, couriers of the kingdom to take that to the corners of the earth. Will we do that? Because what ended up happening is when they heard the news, it said there was feasting and celebrating all around. Not only that, when death crossed over to life, it says many people became Jews because they saw Wow, you guys were dead as a doornail, and then something happened. What happened? Oh, the king couldn't sleep. Oh, yeah, and and Haman tripped that gallows he made for Mordecai. Mordecai was honored, and what? Haman hung on his own gallows. Surely we're fighting against God when we fight against these people. And so they said, we will follow this God. Next week, um, as if you came in late, um, our presider, Eugene, said that um, I'm not going to be here. Um, it's going to be awesome as our youth director, Josiah, preaches the word. Um, it's going to be really amazing uh, for us. So um, I'll be with, my, with Olivia, with my family. We're going to be uh, going out of town with my brother's family. He's coming from Portland. And uh, my mom and dad are coming down from Virginia. Mom's turning 70 years old. It's, we're going to celebrate. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a whole lot of fun. But I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm excited for all that. I'm also excited uh, to spend time with, with my dad. And I, I'll be honest, uh, throughout my years of life, um, we haven't been like best friends. Like dad and I are not BFF. Uh, but we're growing. Like we're growing.
And over the summer, um, over the summer, maybe early part of summer, uh, doctors said that dad has amnesia, and so he's forgetting a lot of things. And so um, this is important. These are important times for us. Um, I was in, some, in, in Virginia for the uh, first part of our sabbatical with our family. We got up there in about a week and a half into the time, um, you know, all the, our relatives, cousins were like, yeah, let's eat together, let's eat. And so we were going to meet one Sunday evening, uh, 6 o'clock dinner, sushi place in Fair Oaks Mall. About 5.30, mom told dad, hey, meet you there. And he said, okay. Uh, 6 o'clock came and everybody was there, seated. About 6.10, we're all there, but um, dad wasn't there. About 6.15, 6.20, starting to get hungry. So the next oldest person said, oh, I want you guys to start eating and then we'll wait for your dad to come. So we're like, all right. <laughs> we started eating, waiting for dad to come. 7 o'clock, he doesn't show up. 7.30, all of a sudden the meal has become quite awkward. You know, this great reunion is becoming a kind of, yeah, where, what's going on here? And calling and it's going straight into voicemail. Calling, going straight into voicemail. So um, this had happened about maybe two weeks earlier where um, dad was driving and he got lost and he ended up in a different state. So he was driving and um, we didn't know where he was. Um, find my iPhone was obviously off because there was no ping coming. So um, we went home. On the way home, we stopped by a police station, filed a missing persons report, and then um, checked credit card statements, called hospitals, called prisons to see if somehow something had happened where he was there. Nobody said he was there. So um, credit card receipt said at about 7.30 or so he had uh, got gas somewhere around that restaurant. And so he was kind of like trying to figure out where it was. And we get home and... There's just a lot that, that went on that night, but at 1.30 in the morning, my mom and I were hanging out at 7-Eleven with a couple cops and, and just explaining, giving all the information, giving his picture and all that stuff, and, and they said, yeah, this is, uh, we take this one pretty seriously, and so they sent an all-points bulletin, so we said, what's going to happen? He said, uh, every police station in America is going to get this, they have his license tag, and they're going to be looking for it in the event that, that he shows up somewhere in their jurisdiction. So we go home, and um, we're, you know, we're praying, we you know, kids are like, where's grandpa? Where's Harabaji? Like, where's grandpa? And how come he's not here? How come he didn't come to dinner? And, and they're all, like, upset that he didn't show up. And um, they, they go to bed, and Olivia puts them to bed, and mom and I are trying to figure out what we're going to do next. And um, I have to say that we're probably, I probably prayed like I haven't prayed before in my life. About 8 in the morning, we got a call that said at 4 in the morning, a cop had spotted his license plate in a couple counties over, and then they said uh, about 30 minutes later, it was going up and down Interstate 95, going north, and it was going south, going north, and it was going south, just up and down. So um, Fairfax County Police put a thing up on Facebook, and then that spread like fire. Um, so all these people are, are sharing it. People are, are sending us messages. People that aren't even Christians, are texting me saying, hey, I'm praying uh, for your dad to, to be found, to come back home. So all these things are happening. We've got police, and uh, my friends are like, dude, I'm, I'm going, I'm going to head over to, to I-95. I'm going to drive up and down where the cops saw, they, they said they saw him, see if his car stalled out somewhere. We're going to drive up and down the road. Like, all of these people are coming around, and they're saying, we're going to look. We're going to help find uh, your dad. And as we're thinking, you know, just what are we going to do, praying the whole time. Kids wake up in the morning. Did Grandpa come home? He didn't come home yet. Keep praying, kids. Keep praying. And about probably about 11 o'clock, we're all sitting around on the stairs just like, uh, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. And the garage door opens, and by the grace of God, <laughs> my dad walks into the house. He just looks completely like, I don't know what he looked like. And so the kids were like, Grandpa, where were you? And I think my mom breathed for the first time in like 20 hours. I just, I, I ran to my dad and I just fell on him and I said, Dad, are you okay? And I just started bawling. And he's like, I don't know where I was. I guess I was lost. So we put a message up on Facebook. Thanks, everyone, for sharing. It had been shared like, by many, many people. Um, thanks. People, obviously, people don't know him, but they see an elderly person. They're like, please help find this man. A couple hours later, my brother and I, we said, let's, you know, Dad loves going to the swimming pool, uh, LA Fitness, so let's go to LA Fitness. We went to LA Fitness, and 
it was our first time there, but that's where dad and mom go all the time, to the pool, to the hot tub. And so dad was there and in the locker room. People are like, oh, you know, Elder Kim, hello. And they're saying hi to him. Uh, oh, hello, 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 and all this stuff. And then he goes and he's hanging out in the pool. And my brother and I play basketball, and then we come back into the pool area, and dad's talking with another man. And afterwards, we're going back home, and, and he's, you know, he's feeling pretty in, in good spirits. And he said, the funny thing is, like, some of these people knew that I was lost. <laughs> it's the power of social media, right? I said, Dad, uh, many people know that you were lost. He said, how come? I said, there's this thing called Facebook that sometimes you like my posts without knowing it, but it's a thing called Facebook, and everyone knows. And I said, for one day, for one day, you are the most famous person in Northern Virginia. He said, oh, is that right? And then he said, when I go to church, it's like a couple thousand people at the church. He said, when I go to church, people are going are gonna to talk about it maybe. I said, yeah, they probably will. But if they do, you just need to know that that's how many people cared about you when you were lost, trying to help you to find your way home. And when he came, the joy and the celebration, the laughter, the release of all of that stuff. And all of these people who gave all of their resources and all of they had in order that one lost person could come home and be found and reunited with the family. David Platt said this, and some of you heard this, but it's not so bad being, the worst thing is not being lost. The worst thing, the only thing worse than being lost is if you're lost and nobody's looking for you. There's a lot of lost people in our world. The only thing worse than that is if no one's looking for them. May we see dead people. May we know that God will bless us as we seek faithfulness to him. May we give everything that we have in order that dead people could come to know Jesus, the lost could come home. May we know, okay, may we know that eternity matters for us and for the lives of those around us. Let's give our lives so that people could come home and find life in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Let's take a minute to pray. Just ask the Lord, who are the people in my life that nobody is looking for, that I know are lost? Who are the people in my life that I need to reach out to? And what are the ways in which God has blessed me? What do I have that I've been using for myself that I'm challenged? I need to open my hands and I need to begin to live so that others might be blessed. I have been blessed to be a blessing. Not for me to be a simple reservoir of the blessings of God, but that I would open my hands and flow, let the blessing of God flow from me to others. Can we pray? Lord, help me. Help me to see as I live life in Persia to live with eyes of faith. As I live life in this secular world, have my eyes fixed on eternity and then may I live my life accordingly. Let's pray for a minute or two right now like that. It's really committing our hearts to the Lord. Let's not just hear the word. But let's be moved to action and obedience because Christ gave himself in order that we might live. Let's be one beggar telling another beggar where they can find bread. Yeah, let's go to the Lord like that in prayer for a couple moments. to pray. Um, we're going to close our service in a second with this song, Mighty to Save. I want you to begin to think about the people that you have given up praying for. Maybe that's your parent or your son or daughter, your cousin, your uncle, your brother, your sister, your friend, the person who used to sit in small groups with you at retreats, who cried, was the most faithful 
but now seems so far from God. We're going to sing to a Savior who can move mountains. Can you begin to pray that God would do that in the life of one or two or three or four people in your life right now? And Lord, may I be the human means by which the mountain-moving work of God happens. Can we pray? Let's, yeah, let's take bold faith. Let's take action. Right, let's try something that if God doesn't show up, then man, this is definitely going to fall apart. But if God shows up, then everyone's going to know it's God and not me. Yeah, let's pray for people like that, can we? Just with, with faith, believing that something happens in the heavenlies when a lost person comes home to the Father. God delights in that and he loves that more than anything. Can we pray? That God, as I pray for this person who doesn't know you to come to know you, I am aligning myself with the word of God and the will of God. And as I do, then the power and the provision of God will come in that place as well. Let's pray for that. Maybe that's, hey, uh, Lord, help me to make that invite to house church. Help me to make that invite to, to SNF, to Sunday, whatever, whatever context you, maybe it's to, to lunch so I can share my testimony. But let's pray for one or two or three people who don't know the Lord right now. And as we think about the fact that God is mighty to save. Let's pray and then sing in a few moments with them in our hearts as we lift them up before God. But let's pray for another half minute for them right now. Can we do that? And I'll pray for us. church on Sunday singing songs and hearing a message even saying a message is good and that touched me and then not doing anything about it or to think that because I've been blessed with so many things that God really loves me without realizing that we've been loved so that we might love others in the name of Jesus we weren't meant to gather together and just get information we were meant to gain that so that we could be changed teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you that's Jesus what you said not just teaching them what I've commanded Father in heaven would you not only put a burden in our hearts but would you light a fire under our seats so that we could not help but to sit in comfort while people around us eternity apart from the God who loves them and made them for relationship with him. So Lord, give us your eyes, give us your hands, give us your feet, give us your heart, and then give us the strength to will and to act according to your good purpose. We thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first, and then you call us to go and love with your love, a world that desperately needs to know that love of God. We thank you and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.